I mean, all of these wrongful conviction cases, ultimately the system works. People do want to tell their stories. You break the law, there are consequences. All right, hello. Hello. And welcome to True Crime and Consequences. And we are continuing on with our series about the West Memphis Three case. We left off at the end of uh, Damien and Jason's trial, where unfortunately they were both convicted of three counts of capital murder. Damien received the death penalty, uh, death by lethal injection, and Jason received a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Um, I believe at the end of the last episode, I did mention that the appeals were immediately filed on behalf of Jesse and Jason and Damien. I believe you did. Yes. So over the course of the years since the trial, many appeals have been filed. In 1996, the Arkansas Supreme Court upheld the West Memphis Three's convictions. But also in 1996, a documentary premiered on HBO called Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. It premiered to not a ton of fanfare because true crime was not a really popular entertainment. I don't even know what word I want to use, but it just wasn't popular in the entertainment world yet. In fact, this documentary, Paradise Lost, really kind of spurned the the true crime obsession that we now know and love in society. I mean, we'd always had true crime books. Anne Rule had written several books back in the 80s. and But it was really one of those things where if you liked true crime, you were kind of viewed like Damien was viewed by the state of Arkansas. You were weird because it was more it was considered a morbid fascination. Yeah. I mean, we had all we'd had a few things mainly on serial as far as I remember on serial killers. But oh, yeah, there was always documentaries on serial killers. There was documentaries about, you know, Charlie Manson and Ted Bundy and things like that. But still, if you enjoyed those things, you were considered odd. So this documentary really kind of brought it to the mainstream. But the the thing that was interesting about it was when the gentlemen who were working for HBO went down to West Memphis to film this trial, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't intend for it to be this rallying cry for you know, uh, criminal justice reform. They were just, oh, there's these three teenagers accused of killing these three little boys. This could be an interesting premise for a documentary. Right. It's an interesting story. So Right. But they had no idea what they were getting into. When they got down there, it was before the trials even started. They get they'd heard they were they were coming up, but they hadn't started yet. That's why they were allowed to film inside the courtrooms for the duration. So they go in there and they're just thinking, okay, we're going to get this interesting information and that's going to be the end of it. You know, we're going to do this documentary and that's cool it. Cool little story. It's a cool story and and you know, it's interesting to watch and and that'll be it. Because really HBO was the only pay cable channel. I was going to say network, but that's not appropriate, is it? Cuz it's pay cable? I don't know. Whatever. I think it's a HBO network, was but... was into doing documentaries. They've always been interested in documentaries, and they continue to do really amazing documentaries. And they covered a broad spectrum of of topics in their documentary series that they would do. So when this premiered in 1996, it created this almost immediate response, this immediate rallying cry from 
literally pretty much anyone who had HBO was like, this is wrong. These boys should not have been convicted. So the documentary Paradise Lost really spawned a movement almost immediately. And there was a group of people in California who got an advanced screener and watched it and then shared it with their friends who watched it. And they decided to set up a website that was uh, WM3.org, and it still exists. And it was basically, they collected trial testimony, evidence, news articles, and were corresponding with Damien, Jason, and Jesse in prison. And they were able to start this website when, you know, social media wasn't a thing yet. And the internet was relatively new. I mean, you know that better than I do when the internet became a thing. But when was that anyway? Do you remember? Well, I think we actually had the internet start in about 91, but it didn't become a public, well-known public thing until like 96. So this is right at the time, right at the at the period where the internet was really taking off and becoming kind of a, a more common thing to see in people's homes. But this was pre-social media, so pre-Facebook, pre-YouTube, pre-Twitter and all that jazz. So you actually had to go seeking out these websites. And the website became very popular very quickly. So in addition to the documentary, you had this website that you could go to that I visited frequently with information regarding the case and new information that they were gleaning from, um, you know, police records and those kinds of things. And a whole lot of celebrities joined that rallying cry. Like I mentioned, uh, what do these people have in common? Because we're talking about Johnny Depp, who kind of felt this, this uh, he, he related to Damien on a really personal level because he felt that Damien and he had a lot of similarities in so far as being considered kind of weird and being the odd man out in their respective neighborhoods or, or communities. So he really, really kind of glommed onto this and helped push for more awareness of the case in society and, and trying to get the legal system in West Memphis to really take another look and see, you know, this maybe this wasn't done properly. You had uh, Henry Rollins, who um, is an actor and a musician. Most recently, I think I saw him on Sons of Anarchy. He played a a white supremacist in season oh I don't yeah remember. yeah he yeah. was like the hardcore white supremacist right i remember right hand guy for the the guy who owned the cigar shop i can't remember all the names of the characters now but that's the last place i remember seeing him but he was he's a musician band black flag and i think that's what it's called and he got involved and so he started doing benefit concerts with eddie vetter and patty smith and the dixie chicks and because they were all supporting this cause, Winona Ryder got involved. Um, and very notably, Peter Jackson, the director of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and numerous other things, got involved with his partner. I don't know if it's girlfriend or wife, or but her name's Fran Walsh. Um, they reached out to Damien's wife, Lori, in 2005 and actually offered to pay for new forensic testing and hiring new experts to look over all the evidence and and all that. I mean, he paid for that out of his own pocket. Oh, wow. So that was pretty rad. Two sequels followed the original Paradise Lost documentary um, just to keep 
audiences kind of updated on information and what was going on. The most recent was released in 2012, I believe. Just just so and then there's been numerous other documentaries done like on ID and that kind of thing that really kept the case in the limelight, which was so incredibly important considering everything that happened after the trial. So after the trials, as I said, many appeals were filed, the convictions were upheld numerous times. I mean, over and over and over again, they were just getting shot down. But after all these celebrities got involved, and then, of course, because celebrities got involved, a huge chunk of the general public started seeing this for what it was, or what they assumed it was, which was an enormous miscarriage of justice and abuse in the justice system, at least in West Memphis, in, in Arkansas. So they hired all of these new experts to really, really dig deep into the case and figure out what really happened to those boys and uh, the the little boys, the ones that were murdered. And then, of course, what happened to the West Memphis Three in so far as being completely hosed by the judicial system. So all of these experts over the years have come up with various theories as to what happened, but they all agree on a few things. And one of the primary things that they do agree on, and this is numerous forensic pathologists all over the world, some of whom are the most well-known forensic pathologists in the world. As an example, Dr. Vincent DeMeo and Dr. Werner Spitz, uh, Werner Spitz being the godfather of forensic pathology. He's written textbooks that every single person in the country, at least in the world, who goes to school to become a forensic pathologist, he's who they learn from. They hired him to look over the whole case. And what they all agree on is that the injuries on the boys' bodies what looked like bite marks, what looked like cuts, what looked like scratches, you know, the the removal of the scrotum of one of the boys and the skin remo- being ripped off of one of the little boy's penises, I hate to say that, but it's the facts, has all been, I don't want to say confirmed because they didn't get to look at the bodies themselves, obviously, but they have all assumed that all of these injuries occurred post-mortem, most likely by animals, most likely by turtles. Because I think, as I pointed out in another episode, that area was called by the kids Turtle Hill. Scavengers feeding on the corpses. Right. And insects. Some of the smaller injuries could have been insects. That's part of nature. Exactly. And they're all, all of the forensic pathologists, with the exception of the one who testified at the trial, are in agreement. The one who... Failed his... The one who who wasn't board certified because he failed twice. Nice. Okay. And then decided not to take it. They've even done experiments on camera to show what these various varieties of turtles that are found in that specific region of the United States can do to a body. And they usually used pigs because they're most similar to us in, in the texture of their muscle and their skin and that sort of thing. And it's amazing to watch. If you ever get a chance to to look it up and watch it, it's really fascinating because they'll just take a pig carcass and throw it into a pool full of all these different kinds of turtles. And to say that the injuries caused by these turtles are identical to the injuries on the boys would be an understatement. They're identical to the injuries on the boys. Also, the forensic pathologist that did the autopsies did them in exquisite detail 
I mean, the autopsies were done beautifully. However, Dr. Peretti, the one who failed his board exams, interpretation of those autopsies is where the error lies. So he was methodical in the autopsy and the note-taking. It's just his interpretation of the evidence is where he fails. That's exactly right. Um, And that's a, a mistake that can be made and is made often. And that's why you want to have multiple experts looking at something. And then you kind of go, okay, well, the majority of those experts say X happened. Because you can't just take the word of the one. You have to look at the collective word of the many. Especially in cases where the alleged perpetrators are alleging wrongful conviction. It's very important to have multiple experts looking at these things. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. So the 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 turtle experiments were fascinating to watch but they really did give you a better understanding of if a body is thrown into water in an area where there is a lot of animal activity specifically turtles that this is what happens to a body and it it's commonplace it's not some crazy satanic ritual it's turtles getting their feet on it's nature doing what nature does because turtles tend to go specifically alligator snapping turtles and box turtles which are two of the variety two of several varieties of turtles in that area, tend to go first on any body, and I mean that not just people, but animals and whatever. Right, any. Go for the soft tissue first. So they will go for things like the scrotum and the penis and ears and fingers and toes and, you know, and uh, and females' breast tissue because it's the soft stuff that's protruding. So it's easy for them to get at. Then they'll start going for other parts once those have been eliminated. Once the easy stuff's gone, you... Right, like any typical animal that is a scavenger, essentially. Right. Go for the easy and then work your way down. Right. um, So that is something that all of these forensic experts agree on. The other thing that they agree on is that in every single repeat of the forensic testing, specifically the DNA, never once, never once from the 90s to now, has the DNA ever pointed at the West Memphis Three? Ever. Nothing. I feel like I need not to make one. that. Not one shred of anything. And we're talking about to now when we have such sensitive DNA technology that requires such a minuscule sample to get a result. Never once has a shred of that evidence pointed at any of the West Memphis Three. Ever. I feel like I need to really drive that home. I think we get it. I hope the audience gets it because that's one of the many things that makes this case so egregious is that no physical evidence ever pointed to these guys. And yet they were sent to prison for this. And Damien was sentenced to death on what at best would be circumstantial evidence based on flawed witness testimony, but no physical evidence. You had uh, flawed testimony. Yeah, yeah. And uh, lots of and issues. And I feel with like that's one. being generous with yeah. my assessment. Is that there are lots of issues there? There's a lot of issues. So you There's also more had issues the fact, than evidence. You also had the fact that they never looked really at anyone else except for Mr. Bojangles was also almost immediately eliminated. Although he couldn't be eliminated because the evidence had been lost. Chris Morgan, the ice cream truck driver, had been eliminated even though he'd made some statements to the California police that could have been considered incriminating, he was still eliminated. You know, and then you had uh, Mark Byers, John Mark Byers, 
Chris Byers' stepfather, who was scrutinized for years, but more so in the court of public opinion, not by law enforcement. He was scrutinized by law enforcement, but he was scrutinized in the court of public opinion for a lot longer. Partially but most because of that of, was because of his theatrical personality. Yeah, the way he came across in the first documentary And the was second documentary. Very over the top. And the second documentary. And the second documentary. I don't remember. The second Paradise <laughs> watched Lost. watched all of them. The second Paradise Lost documentary tries to uh, make a case that it could be Mark Byers, but that has been very, that has been scrutinized over and over. He has been scrutinized over and over, including by Damien's experts that were hired by Peter Jackson, who were like, he had nothing to do with it. You know, I mean, he's just a kind of a quirky theatrical guy, but he's not the type of person who would do something like this. And and to everyone who's spoken to him, it's very obvious how much he loved his son. So it, he was eliminated. Also, no DNA ever pointed to him either. So, you know, he was eventually eliminated and he was also eventually cleared in the court of public opinion when he started supporting the West Memphis Three and stated that he just believed what the state told him at the time. But that after really looking at the evidence and understanding, you know, the science behind it and and that it would have been virtually impossible for there to be no DNA anywhere that links them, you know, then he's changed his tune. And Pam Hobbs, now Pam Hicks, Stevie's mom, same thing. She now believes that they're innocent. The only parents who are still on the West Memphis Three hate train is Todd and Dana Moore, which was Michael Moore's parents. They are still trusting what the state told them. And uh, Terry Hobbs. But we'll get into that here in a, in a little bit. So up until 2011, every appeal they tried to make failed. But in 2001, the Arkansas legislature passed what is kind of commonly referred to as the Arkansas DNA statute, which would allow defendants who were convicted in cases to request new DNA testing in those cases and then to subsequently request an evidentiary hearing based on the results of the DNA. So obviously that passes and Damien's attorneys and Jason's attorneys and Jesse's attorneys immediately put in a request for the new DNA testing and request an evidentiary hearing based on this Arkansas DNA statute. Two years later, so that would be 2003, they were allowed to retest all the evidence in their case based on the statute. And the results again confirmed that there was no DNA from the West Memphis Three on at the crime scene or on any of the bodies. But there was DNA to be found. There was DNA to be found, yes, but not theirs. I'll get uh, to that. Well, that <laughs> definitely, I mean, when you say there's no DNA evidence that, or to link them, then, then the question is always, well, is there any DNA evidence at all? And if there is, and it points to somebody else potentially, that really... Right. Well, I'm about to get to that because how although there was no DNA linking Damian Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., or Jason Baldwin to the crime scene or the bodies, there were, however, two hairs found at the original crime scene. One was found tied, it was, it was kind of jammed into the knot of the shoelaces, so the ligature, that tied up Michael Moore, one of the victims. The other hair was found on a tree stump nearby several days later because, you know, they had the crime scene in their control for 
for a while. I believe it was almost a week where they were scouring it for evidence. So I will refer to them as the ligature hair and the tree stump hair. Makes sense. Those hairs were tested for mitochondrial DNA. And the ligature hair was found to be consistent. Now, this isn't an exact match, obviously. But it was found to be consistent with Terry Hobbs. One Stevie, Br- Stevie Branch's stepfather, Pam Hobbs's husband at the time. The tree stump hair was found to be consistent with a friend of Terry and Pam's named David Jacoby, who also was Terry's alibi witness for that night. Oh, that's convenient. Yeah. I mean, yes, but um, I don't personally believe that David Jacoby himself had anything to do with this, and I'll explain why. The night that the boys went missing, after Terry took Pam to work, so that would have been around 5 o'clock, he went back home and... A short while later, I think it was probably around 5.30, according to David Jacoby's statements, that Terry showed up at his front door with their daughter, with his and Pam's daughter, Amanda. So Stevie's sister, half-sister, and and mentioned that Stevie had gone out with friends and was missing. So David's like, well, shit. Do you want me to come out and help you look for him? Because that's not, you know, it's getting dark. And and he's like, no, he'll he'll turn up. So what they ended up doing, according to Terry and David Jacoby, they sat at David's house and played. They both played guitar together. That was kind of their thing. And so they sat around playing guitar for about an hour. And then Terry said to David, I need to go home and see if Stevie is home yet. So he leaves. And that would have been about 630. Later, a little bit later, after he's gone home to supposedly check, he comes back to David Jacoby's house. Asked David to go with him to help look for the boys. They go out, ride around for about 15 minutes. Terry goes back, drops David off at his house, and Terry leaves. Again, alone. And then comes back again a couple hours later. Still haven't found him. They go riding around looking for him again. Don't find anything. Terry takes David home. Terry leaves, and that's the last time David sees him that night. Now, Terry claims. Oh, and I should also point out that uh, David did say that they went out and looked around in the woods a bit, which could explain why David's hair was out in the woods. What could also explain why David's hair is out in the woods could be secondary transfer, because Terry had been sitting in David's house for at least a solid hour. So he could have gotten David's hair on him is the point I'm making. Does that make sense? Yeah. Secondary transfer is a common Thing, especially when it comes to hairs and fibers. So, so Terry claims, however, that he was with David all night. So when he reported Stevie missing at when he went to pick Pam up from work, so he called them from Pam's work, he had indicated that he had been with David Jacoby all night. They were either at David's house or they were out looking for the boys, but he was with David Jacoby all night long. So he didn't even mention the breaks of time where he was... No, and they didn't talk to David Jacoby. They didn't confirm his alibi. They they basically called David up and said, so was Terry with you last night? And he said, yes. And they said, oh, okay, cool. Thanks, click. You know, that was pretty, I mean, I'm sure there was a little more to it than that, but that's basically what it boils down to. Also, when Terry made the um, the call, the 911 call from Pam's work reporting Stevie missing, the officer came out and spoke to him. That is the only time 
he was spoken to by police about the boy's disappearance and deaths, with the exception of the day the bodies were found and they had the group of parents standing out there and the police came to tell everyone that they'd found the boy's bodies. So he was never formally questioned. He was never formally questioned. He was never scrutinized as a suspect or even just simply a person of interest. Even though he was a stepfather to one of the boys. Correct. Who would normally be... The first person you go the to. first people you scrutinize, but they Because when you have someone them. who's murdered, when you have someone who's... Anyone who's murdered, not just a child, but when you have someone who's murdered, you start with the people closest to them and you work your way out. And when it comes to children, that's especially important because 85% of children who are murdered are murdered by someone they know or a family member. So it's imperative that you start from the inner circle and work your way out. But they didn't do that here. I mean, remember, I said in the last episode, they had Damien and Jason sitting in an interrogation room the day after the bodies were found. Even though they didn't have any... Even though they had zero motive and alibis. Solid, confirmed alibis. Not flaky Terry Hobbs alibis. Right? I mean, it's messed up no matter how you slice it. But they clearly had tunnel vision. They knew who they wanted to tag for it, and they were determined to do it no matter what it took, is the what it boils down to. And they didn't want to question any other people, at least not too intently, because then it might shift into them having to go after someone they don't want to go after. But I also kind of wonder, I've never seen anybody ask this question, and I've never seen any evidence one way or the other on this, but I've always wondered, West Memphis is a small town. Everybody kind of knew each other, especially in the 90s. What friends did Terry Hobbs have in the West Memphis Police Department? Because the only reason I can think that someone, that the step-parent of one of the murdered kids wasn't scrutinized at all has to be because he knew somebody. You know, it can't, it can't just be that they just flubbed that poorly. Well, I mean, there is always just incompetence and there's tunnel vision. I know, Some but to people... scrutinize Mark Byers, but not Terry Hobbs? It's it's a good possibility, but... Because Todd Moore, you couldn't scrutinize Todd Moore because he was a long-haul truck driver. He was out of the state. So he had a rock-solid, you know, alibi with, with literal documentation proving where he was since, you know, truckers keep those logs of where they are when. Like, I just don't understand. I don't understand it. He had to have a friend, or at least I personally believe he had to have a friend. So... In 2007, Damien's defense team held a big press conference at the University of Arkansas to talk about the evidence and testing that had been done based on the Arkansas DNA statute. And they had a bunch of press there, and they had a whole mess of experts, including John Douglas, who uh, some of our audience may recognize the name, one of the most well-respected and famous FBI criminal profilers of all time. He's now retired. But he is one of the most well-respected profilers ever. And he's the one who teaches other profilers how to be profilers. Among Werner Spitz that I talked about earlier, uh, you know, the, uh, sorry. Forensic pathologist. The forensic pathologist. Thank you. The most famous forensic pathologist on earth. So in addition to telling the 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 public and the press at this press conference about the new DNA testing, part of which was that the the ligature hair was consistent with Terry Hobbs's DNA. Now, I do I do need to point out that 
based on the analysis of the DNA, that 1% of the population could have been the contributor of that hair. So but that included Terry Hobbs in that 1%. So it wasn't a full DNA profile conclusive match. It right. was it. It's it was consi- mitochondrial DNA consistent with Terry Hobbs but could have been contributed by up to 1% of the population. And the same goes for the tree stump hair with David Jacoby. But one of the biggest revelations at that press conference was allegations of juror misconduct in the original trial, in Damien and Jason's trial. And it was so egregious, I can't even express. The gentleman in question was a guy by the name of Kent Arnold, who had hired this attorney named Lord Warford, a local attorney in West Memphis, uh, to defend his brother in a completely unrelated matter. And during the course of their relationship, his relationship with the lawyer, uh, he had been basically consistently trash-talking the West Memphis Three. Jesse's trial had already happened. And so he was consistently trashing the West, West Memphis Three. Uh, oh, those boys are guilty. Oh, they're Satanists. Oh, they're this or that. Well, guess who gets a jury summons for Damien and, and Jason's trial? So he gets his jury summons and he talks to this lawyer who's now, you know, an acquaintance at least, um, and says, man, the lawyer's name, uh, Lloyd Warford, he says, hey, Lloyd, how, how can I get on this jury for sure? Now, Lloyd being an attorney and not his attorney is, you know, just kind of talking to him casually and says, well, you know, you've been so vocal about your disdain for them and you already have kind of preconceived notions, so you're not going to get on the jury. Don't worry about it. You know, just show up and answer the questions. Honestly, you're not going to get on the jury. A little while later, Lloyd gets a call from Mr. Kent Arnold, who says, hey, guess what? I'm on the jury. And Lloyd says, how the hell did that happen? And he says, and I quote, stupid judges and stupid lawyers who don't ask specific questions. Now, if you don't know anything, if you've never been on a jury, you don't know anything about the jury selection process. They call in a whole, they only need 12 people total. They usually take 12 people and at least two alternates, so 14 people total. And what will typically happen is they'll call all these people in and they'll ask everyone bulk questions. You know, have you, do you have negative opinions about the legal system? Do you have this? Do you have that? Then after they've narrowed it down from those questions, they will do pinpointed questions to each specific person and pick. And each lawyer gets to do that on the prosecution and the defense side. And then they get, you, they say yay or nay to that juror, and then 12 people and two, at least two alternates are picked out of that grouping of people. So, for example, when I got called in for jury duty last time, there was 115 of us called for one trial. And then they slowly, over the course of the day, narrowed it down. I did not get picked, which I was fine with. But uh, that's generally how it works. So basically, he is saying that they didn't ask him the right questions. Although I'm more inclined to believe that he just flat out lied. Or they asked questions that he could uh, omit things from or bend the right, truth like in a way. Like he could kind of like hornswoggle his way around without being like, I hate them and I think they're evil Satanists. Yeah, exactly. So he gets put on the jury and no sooner does he get put on the jury than he gets picked as jury foreman. <sighs> yeah. Anyway. so. Lloyd 
the attorney and his assistant are just blown away because this guy has been just bad mouthing the whole situation for months now. And he's jury foreman, the one who has probably the most influence in that room, especially during deliberations. He even kept calling Lloyd Warford, the attorney, trying to get him to give him like inside information about the case. Which, A, he couldn't do because it would be a conflict. Because he, But on the, sec- on the other hand, he didn't know anything because he wasn't directly involved in the case. So he just kept telling him, I, even if I knew something, I couldn't tell you, but I don't know anything. So just relax and do your job. Pay attention to the evidence and do whatever the evidence tells you to do. So some time went by. The trial kept going on. And eventually, uh, Kent Arnold called the attorney again and said, you know, these, these guys are going to get away with it. Like, they're going to get away with it. How do I sway the jury? Because they're fucking guilty, you know? And Lloyd's like, what do you mean sway? You can't sway. You're doing your job. Just do your job. You're not swaying the jury. Let them make their own decisions. He's like, but if I do that, they're going to get away with it. And he goes, then they get away with it. That's how the system works, you know, and let it go. Well, we all know the boys were convicted. Why were they convicted? I'm sure there was a number of reasons. But the primary reason is that during this 2007 press conference in investigating new evidence and information, they had uh, spoken to former jurors. And out of all the former jurors they spoke to, one still had their note. And during deliberations, Kent Arnold, the jury foreman, took it upon himself to present, and I quote, the Jesse Miss Kelly testimony. Testimony that wasn't actually allowed. The quote-unquote confession that was not allowed in the trial because Jesse recanted his testimony and refused to testify against Damien and Jason. So nothing that Jesse had said was allowed at Damien and Jason's trial. Kent Arnold took it upon himself to present that information to the jury during deliberation, ultimately swaying them all to not only a guilty verdict, but to sentence Damien to die over a lie, revolting, just because he was convinced that these cats were guilty. He's going to do something illegal to get them convicted. And nobody knew about it until 2007. 14 years later, we finally find out that, that he had done that. All because one juror kept her notebook. Thank God she did. Right? I mean, it's crazy. So after this uh, press conference, um, a lot of the celebrities that had that were supporting these guys, uh, you know, were asked questions because they were known supporters. So the press were asking them questions. And sometime during somewhere between 2007 and 2009, uh, Natalie Maines had made some statements in the press talking about the information that was revealed at the press conference part of the information was that ligature hair that had was consistent with Terry Hobbs's DNA so what does Terry Hobbs do in 2009 Terry Hobbs sues Natalie Maines lead singer of the Dixie Chicks for defamation it's not defamation if there's a fact well you and I know that but he did it anyway but what did that do that opened him up to be deposed under oath we get to start asking Terry Hobbs questions. He totally shot himself in the foot. It was freaking hilarious. So he was deposed along with, you know, everybody else involved. 
And, uh, oh, I should point out, though, that uh, he lost the lawsuit because uh, the judge said there was a lack of intentional malice on Natalie Maine's part. She was just regurgitating facts. Unless she said something to the kin of, he did it. Which she did not do. Then she's just stating the facts. So he, lo- of the he case. lost the defamation case and was forced to pay Natalie Maine's $14,000 in legal fees. Rightly so. Yeah, exactly. But as a result of the lawsuit, of course, he opened himself up to to questions that maybe he didn't want to have to answer. So they take full the defense. Natalie Maines' def, uh, defense attorney in the lawsuit is working with Damien's defense to ask Terry Hobbs pointed questions under oath because that's never happened before. He's never been asked anything about this stuff. So. As an example, he was asked if he was a violent man, and he said no. He was asked if he was a good husband, and he said yes. He asked if he was a good father, and he said yes. Unfortunately, all of that has been proven untrue for years with documentation. He beat Pam. He abused Stevie. He shot Pam's brother because he came over to confront Terry about beating Pam. He assaulted a former elderly neighbor. Like he so just, he has a he has bad a temper. violent history, a history of flying into rages. He's not a good person. His daughter Amanda, Stevie's half sister, for a long time accused him of sexually assaulting her. However, she has since retracted that, but she told her mother that for years. So he's not a good guy, no matter what he tries to say. I'm not saying he's a murderer. But he's not a good person by any stretch of the imagination. He, in this deposition, he was asked numerous times about the night of the murders. He claimed he never saw the boys at all that night when, after they went missing. Yet a neighbor named Jamie Ballard has testified for years that she saw Terry with all three boys at around 6.30. She is the reason that the the official time they were last seen was 6.30. But she didn't know that Terry was claiming he'd never seen the boys that night. The second she found out that that was his claim, she called the defense team and said, he's lying because it was a Wednesday night and my mother and I always went to church Wednesday night for prayer group. And we left at 6.30. And when we were walking out, I saw the three boys ride by our driveway There were two bikes and three boys, two boys on one bike and one boy on the other. They rode bikes because I saw Stevie and I looked at Stevie and I said, Stevie, you better get your butt home. It's starting to get dark. And he says, you're not my mom. I don't have to listen to you. And then she hears a male voice holler, Stevie, get your butt down here. And she turns and looks and it's Terry. They were neighbors. They all knew each other. It's not like she's going to make a mistake and go, no, oh, I'm sorry. My bad. It wasn't Terry. She knows Terry Hobbs. So... He claims, like I said earlier, that he was with David Jacoby the whole night. But David says Terry left his house twice that night alone and was gone for at least an hour or more at a time. So his alibi witnesses don't back up his alibi. Unlike the West Memphis Three, who all had alibis that have been backed up by numerous people, both at the trial and and from then till now. So there's evidence that could link him to the the crime scene. Correct. His son was one of the victims, his stepson. uh, alibi is not completely corroborated. There's a witness that puts him with the boys At sometime before the murder. Correct. On that night. Correct. And he could have a potential 
reason for the murder if he was a violent person prone to well, here's what, outbursts <clears throat> and he was pissed off. Right. Here's what he here's what John Douglas has had to say about the uh the killing itself. He has always maintained that the killing the style of the killing would be known as a personal cause homicide, meaning that the perpetrator, alleged perpetrator, had some kind of personal relationship with at least one or more of the victims. In this case, there were three victims, so it'd be one or more of the victims. Check. Terry was Stevie's stepfather. Terry and Stevie had a volatile relationship. That was known. That has been documented. And that he doesn't think, John Douglas does not think that the murder was intentional initially. What he believes is that it was someone who knew one or more of the boys. They were angry at one or more of the boys for some reason. They began to punish one of the boys for that reason. The punishment got out of hand, killed one of them. And at that point, everything else is just to cover it up. Because in John Douglas's opinion, there is absolutely no reason for the level of concealment that was done with the clothes being stuck into the mud, the bikes being thrown into the water to be concealed, the bodies being thrown in the water to be concealed. There's no reason to conceal it if you're a stranger just passing through, which yeah. I tend to agree with. On so And again, I am not in any way saying that Terry Hobbs is a murderer. I am just saying that he needed to be scrutinized then, and he most definitely needs to be scrutinized now, because he has never been looked at as a suspect. When the police realized that they had never spoken to him in 14 years, they called him in for an interview. But the interview was incredibly casual. It was him and one other officer who he clearly knew, again, small town. And it's like, it might as well have been two guys sitting on a porch drinking a beer, talking about shit from the past. It was not a legitimate well, uh, to be interview. fair, to be fair, that is one way to try to get somebody to talk. You put them at ease. Yeah, but that's clearly not what was happening here. I mean, if you watch, if you watched it, you'd understand what I'm talking about. It was clearly just a shooting the shit kind of situation. So, uh, and of course, Terry denied any involvement as per usual. That is his default setting. Um, even Pam, his ex-wife, Stevie's mother, has come to the conclusion that uh, she believes that he is definitely capable. And one of the reasons that she believes that is that in the course of the investigating that went on prior to the 2007 uh, press conference and, and the DNA testing, she found in a, when her and Terry were getting divorced, she in 2003, she found inside one of Terry's lockboxes a pocket knife. Now, the pocket knife belonged to Stevie. It was given to him by his grandfather, Pam's mother, or Pam's mother, Pam's father. Sorry, I can't even talk. Pam's father. Um, it was one of his prized possessions. That and his bicycle were his two most prized possessions, both of which given to him by his grandfather. And he had that pocket knife on him. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So when she found that knife in the lockbox, her first thought was, there's no way that Stevie didn't have that knife on him when he disappeared. Now, Terry claims that he, quote, took the knife away from Stevie because he was being, quote, a responsible father and not letting a six, seven, eight-year-old carry a pocket knife. Now, 
To some parents, that would sound like a reasonable explanation, but he had already had it for a significant amount of time prior to that and had never had any incidents with it. He just carried it with him. He didn't really use it, Pam said. He just carried it because his grandpa gave it to him. So why did Terry have it all of a sudden? His explanation could be true, could could be true. But if that were true, why didn't he tell Pam he did that? Do you know what I mean? Like, why didn't he say, what the hell are you doing letting your eight-year-old have a pocket knife, Pam? I'm taking it and locking it up till he's older. Why didn't he do that? It's a good question. Yeah. And since the boys were stripped naked before they were, and hogtied before they were thrown into the water, isn't it reasonable to think that anything that might, that had been in their pockets might have been taken by the assailants because there was nothing found in the clothing pockets when they, the clothing was found by the police? So it's reasonable to, to think that that's a possibility. Again, it's circumstantial at best, but it's still something that made Pam, you know, things that make you go, hmm. Yeah. With his violent history and all of that, it just, it added up to a lot of uh, not good. <laughs> and even Pam was like, this, this isn't good. Like, what's happening? And in fact, she turned the pocket knife over to the private investigators that were working for the defense at that point. Now, I don't have any information on if there was ever any DNA or any of that done on the knife, but I do know that she was concerned enough to turn it over to the defense. So uh, Gary Gitchell, the original investigator on the case in 1993, who I believe was retired by this point, was also deposed in the uh, Natalie Maines, Terry Hobbs civil case. Um, and he flat out refused to answer any questions about why Terry Hobbs had never been questioned or considered a person of interest. He just was like, I'm not going to answer those questions. Uh, I don't really understand why, especially considering the fact that he's retired now. Like, what difference does it make if you can just explain maybe like maybe there's an interview we didn't know about? Why are you just saying that you're not going to answer that? Self-incrimination? That's what I say. But, you know, that's just me. Um, so, I mean, the fact of the matter is Terry Hobbs was never scrutinized as a suspect in this case at all, ever. He wasn't even formally interviewed until 2007, a full 14 years after the murders had taken place. None of his alibi witnesses actually back him up fully. His ex-wife believes he's capable of it. Uh, he has a violent history and he had violent occur after the murders. So, oh, and he used to work in a slaughterhouse, which was one of the things when they were originally looking into the case because of the way the boys were hogtied and originally they thought they were cut on. They thought maybe it was it was kind of a Jack the Ripper kind of thing. They thought either he was a butcher or a surgeon, you know, it was like because the scrotum was, quote, removed in the skin. So he's he would be a person of interest to me. I'm not saying he's a suspect, but he would certainly be a person of interest. And as far as I'm concerned, he still is because he's never been genuinely scrutinized on any level to this day. We're in 2020 now. He still has yet 27 years later, and he still hasn't been properly looked into by law enforcement on any level. But Mark Byers was numerous times. So it, it's just grossly unfair. Like, who does he know in the system that's letting him just skate? Like, I don't know. That's just my opinion. So after all of this, uh, in 2008, Damien's lawyers filed a motion for a new trial based on the new DNA evidence under that Arkansas DNA statute. And the state, of course, denied it. Of course they denied it, right? Like, the state's not going to concede at this point. But 
Two years later, they took it to the Arkansas Supreme Court. So the state had interpreted the, this DNA statute to mean that only evidence of guilt could be presented. Not all evidence that had been collected over the last 17 years in this case, but just evidence of guilt. And this was ridiculously argued by Senior Assistant Attorney General David Raup, a completely nonsensical argument that we are going to play for you right now. Good morning. May it please the court. Mr. Eccles has been to this court several times in the last decade, challenging his conviction directly and collaterally. And this statute does not call for a retrial. It's not about trying somebody again for the state to prove guilt twice. Counselor, what harm is there in allowing him to present the evidence in the last 17 years? I'm sorry. What harm is there to, in allowing him to present all evidence? Well, the harm is in the finality of a criminal judgment that is not demonstrated to have any constitutional or procedural defect and just to try it again. I mean, you're suggesting, it sounds to me, just as previous, though, every 15 or 17 years or so, we, we really ought to try cases again to reestablish guilt. I, 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 think it's, I think it's clear that the animating purpose here is not to retry. So the harm is... In, is to the criminal justice system's interest in finality and, and the work that gets done in evaluating whether or not justice has been served in each of the forums that Mr. Eccles has been through already. It sounds as if your argument is that all evidence of guilt will be considered, but it's going to be extremely difficult to admit all of their evidence that may have been exculpatory. I think that's, that, is, that is the argument. It's the second alternative reason the circuit court concluded that relief should be denied. And to me, it's, that's a reasonable statute. But where does it say all other evidence of guilt? I understand that it doesn't expressly say that, but you have to interpret the statute in light of its um, animating purpose. And you have to interpret it in light of rules of grammar. I mean, I think that's a very fair construction. Uh, I'm having trouble following you. If the testing has to prove you're innocent, why would you even need a, a hearing? Well, again, I think you have to go back to context, Your Honor. We have to deal with the clear meaning of the statute. I understand your context argument, but we still have to deal with the clear language of a statute. Crazy, right? Yeah, makes zero sense. So, of course, based on his completely nonsensical argument, in November of 2010, the Supreme Court of the state of Arkansas unanimously voted in favor of Damien, ordering a new evidentiary hearing and clarified in their documents that all evidence collected over the last 17 years and all evidence presented at the original trial would be considered at the evidentiary hearing. And so we are going to pause for now, and we will come back, and I will tell you not only what happened with the evidentiary hearing, but what has happened since then. Because the evidentiary hearing was in 2011, we're now in 2020, and actually quite a bit has happened. So we will talk about that in the next episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you're enjoying listening as much as we're enjoying making these. And we will see you in the next one. Bye. Bye. Ultimately, the system works. Consequences.